When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, Ben, I thought I would start this podcast in a a slightly different way by maybe asking you a question. All right, Scott. Well, as Arby said, different is good, so I'm on board. And I do love Arby's, but uh, here's my question. All right. All right. My question is this. Do you have any float building experience? Now, I'm talking about parade floats, and it's not such an odd question because you've been through high school, you've been through college. Mm-hmm. In high school, you know, around homecoming time, a lot yeah. of times, uh, you know, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, they all get together out on the football field, you know, maybe a late night party, and they build a float for the homecoming, right? Same thing for college. Uh, do you have any float building experience? I do actually, yeah, I do have some float building experience, uh, some of it fairly recent. There's a parade in uh, Atlanta every Halloween, the Little Five Points Halloween Parade, and some of my buddies uh, that I, I, I run with, I run in some weird Halloween-y circles, and uh, I help them make some floats uh, about once a year. Hmm. And it's, you know, this is a... This is a parade that runs the gamut because I think we could say there's a division between parade floats. You got the really, really big stuff, Thanksgiving Day parade. You got the really, really smaller stuff, smaller town. And in our case, the, the float that we're building is usually a, um, is usually like a trailer attached to a pickup truck and there are some people in the bed of the truck and then there's, uh, we build something up on the trailer. Sure. That seems like a typical, uh, that's high, more small town. That's yeah. like a high school float or yeah. small town type float, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, small town versus, you know, big town parades in just a minute, but that's interesting. That's all new information to me. I had no idea that you were a float builder around Halloween. I, I didn't know you did that. I'm a, I'm, I'm a jack of uh, all trades, master of none, yeah, I guess. I guess so. It's uh, <laughs> something new. And I've, I've, you know, worked on floats, I guess, in high school. I didn't do anything uh-huh. in college as far as, you know, float building, but I know groups like Boy Scouts, you were in Boy Scouts as well. Yeah, we did uh, floats for that. They do floats, that's right. So there's all types of groups and, you know, you'd be surprised with as many people that have at some point in their life worked on a float. But what most people don't think about is actually driving a float. Whew. Yeah, I would, 
I would never want to drive a float. Uh, you know what? I don't think I would either. After reading, it may be fun to try it, I guess, but um, it's a lot of pressure, and, and you wouldn't think that it would be as uh, as hazardous as it really is. You know what, Scott? Let me amend that statement. I would drive a float on an, a test course. I would not want to drive a float through a parade route full of uh, people probably drinking, a lot of them, mm-hmm. uh, running out there to high-five their buddy in the parade and kids, you know, because as we're going to learn, this is a much more daunting endeavor than you might think it is. Now, this is where we're going to start this podcast, and we'll go a few different directions sure, with this, sure. but, but I want to tell you that what we're talking about are the types of floats where you don't see the vehicle in front. It's not like a, you know, the, the trailer type float that you're talking about. Right. Yeah, it's not but, converted. Exactly right. This is more of a, a um, you know, the float is the float itself, and you don't see what's underneath. There's something driving that from below, but you don't know what's under Yeah, there. it's purpose-built, and it just looks like a scene from a movie or something on wheels. And there, there's an interesting article that came from an, an older article, I guess, from mm-hmm. Car and Driver, a guy named John Phillips, who actually went to something called uh, Parade Driving School. Yeah. And it was in Detroit. And before you laugh about that, it's really a necessity because, you know, you might think that it's a joke, you know, that, that you don't really have to do something like that. But when you really think about it, and you've, you've mentioned this, Ben, the crowds, you know, the crowds are right on the curb. They're very, very right. tight. And there's often a lot of people and they kind of, uh, they get out into the street sometimes and, you know, the, the route goes through city streets, which are typically crowded and narrow. I mm-hmm. mean, typically, I guess, when you think about the size of flows, because they're very, very big. Uh, some of them approaching 100 feet or even more at this point. Yeah. I mean, they just keep getting bigger. It's not unusual to have an, you know, an 85 foot float that you're trying to navigate through, through city streets, which is its own daunting task, but, um, this is exactly what he wrote about in this uh, in this article, and it's called "Ever Wonder Who's Inside a Parade Float." Mm-hmm. And this is his uh, his chance, his day, I guess, at Parade Driving School, which he did become certified to drive in the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah, the America's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which is held in Detroit, and this is a big one. This is one that attracts like or it used to something like 1.2 million people, or some crazy thing like that. It's a huge, huge. It's it's. On the same level as about the, you know, like the Rose Parade. Did you ever go? Did you I, guys go? I did, yeah. As a matter of fact, I've been to the parade company where they build these things. So we'll talk about that oh, too. Oh, cool. But there's a, it's, it's really a neat place. And that's kind of what spawned the idea for this whole thing. Hmm. I was thinking about these, uh, these parade vehicles and they're so unusual. And you might think that, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively easy or it's fun to drive a parade float. But as this writer tells us, he said it's actually, it's a perfect nightmare driving a float and he'll tell you why as we go through this yeah all right so the first thing we got to get out of the way is that uh, he says your view of the outside is confined to a small black and white image that appears on an eight inch square television screen that's lashed atop a dashboard that Mm. is buried below this enormous float that's on top of you yeah i mean you're in a vehicle that i think he said that his was a um uh like a 96 dodge ram or something yeah dodge ram 2500 chassis yeah but uh he said you couldn't tell from looking at it, so you won't have to tell you what it was. You would never recognize that this is a this this is a pickup truck underneath there. So they don't just take a, a pickup truck and build on top of that. They strip all the bodywork off of it. Right. About the only thing left is the the steering wheel, the dash, uh, you know, the prindle where you shift, uh-huh. and that's about it. I mean, it's yeah. really really bare bones. Uh, he says he's got a great line in here where he says the cockpit was nearly as dark as Ulysses S. Grant's appendix. <laughs> no <laughs> seatbelts. No doors. Yeah, pretty dark, pretty
pretty uh, pretty cramped, I guess. So if you've got claustrophobia, this is not the place you want to be. Um, and the thing is, these these floats are expensive, Ben. I mean, they're they're yeah. expensive to build. Uh, they're huge. They take up a lot of space. So this parade company where he went to, just to give you an idea of the lay of the land here, it's in downtown Detroit. Uh, he said it was in a, in a a pretty rough industrial area. He said it looked like Baghdad, but after five or six tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge, huge warehouse. 220,000 square feet is how big this warehouse is. And they currently house 45 ready-to-roll floats. So that's how big this place is. Plus right. all the other stuff, because I've seen it. They've got costumes for everybody that's performing in the in the parade. Right. Um, they've got you know lots of these giant paper mache heads that hang from the ceiling. It's really kind of a weird place. All and these then, props, uh, props, lots of props, and they have to have areas to work in. I mean, it's a giant workshop. So there's there's welding, there's mm-hmm. carpentry work mm-hmm. that's going on, there's uh, the finishing work. There's a garage, mechanic garage, office space for design studios. Mm-hmm. You know, like where they design the floats and put them together. I mean, it's just a massive, massive building. And to sponsor one of these things, just to give an idea Ooh. of how much money. Yeah. Now, on the day of the parade, it may cost anywhere from thirty-five thousand to one hundred thousand dollars to sponsor a float, and the average price is seventy-five thousand dollars per float. So these are pricey, pricey things. You don't want to just get in one and bang one up. So there, there's a good reason that you have to go to this driving school. Right. And uh, there's also a great comparison he has. Uh, Scott, could you make that comparison there, where he says what it's like if you wreck a float? If you, oh yeah, if you wreck a float, he says it's, it's kind of like totaling a Jaguar XJR. So if you want to put that in perspective, I mean, it's, it's roughly a hundred thousand bucks. Yeah. So expensive, expensive thing. And, and also, but here's the thing. You, when you're driving this, if you're actually inside, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like you're driving a hundred thousand dollar car and it certainly doesn't smell like it. No, no, no. And you know, we mentioned the chassis and the way that, um, you know, the, uh, they don't just build on top of a truck, you know, like you would think that they would. Right. They dismantle a take, lot. Take a look online. If you do a Google search online for custom built parade float chassis, and you'll be surprised at the, at the vehicle that you'll see there. It's a, it's a custom, again, as it says, custom built chassis that, you know, the, the most of the frame rails are far below the top edges of the wheels. They're, they're exposed. The driver mm-hmm. is sitting in a very small cockpit that has just a, like a box built in front of a, a metal box. Often there's more than one driver below there as well. You know, there's a front and rear driver in a lot of the cases. Usually there's only a couple of turning wheels, and then the rest is it depends on a couple of pivot points and casters. And right. uh, it's very, very complicated the way these things are put together if you see underneath one. But um, his day, this uh, this driver's day, um, you know, John Phillips, in, in, this, uh, in this parade driving school, I guess it didn't go so well because he said that he kept exceeding the four mile per hour speed limit. So that was one thing that he was doing wrong. Right. Um, the other thing is that, you know, you've got this automatic transmission that you have to keep in second gear all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's to keep it totally smooth because, you know, you're, you have to be conscious of how you accelerate and brake in these things. It's very, very gradual. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the difficulty in trying to accelerate something that's 85 feet long and weighs six tons. Six tons. That's the other thing, Ben. You, you mentioned a good point here. The weight. Now, a lot of that is chassis, of course, right. but there's a lot of uh, metal framework that's built on top of that, uh-huh. and then there's wood, there's styrofoam, which doesn't weigh a whole lot, but when you talk about you know a lot of styrofoam on something that's, again, 60 feet long, 80 yeah. feet long. There's like a dozen people on top of it. It begins to weigh a lot. Yeah, there's you know, so many people on top of it, which you have to be very conscious of. Now, think about this, too. Hmm. Let's say you're driving a, a parade float, and you've got a championship ball team on top. 
you know, those people, they've got contracts that are worth, you know, $10 million each every year or whatever. You know, oh, yeah, Just, yeah, just yeah. an example. Right. Let's say that you stop abruptly and then a couple of them fall off and injure their knees and they're out for the season. You've just created quite a situation in that town, right? You're going to be a very unpopular parade float driver. Right. And uh, you're also, this uh, this is kind of weird, but um, just go with me down this tangent for a second, All Scott. Right. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. You know how when we talked a little bit about aircraft carriers and water into jet fuel and stuff like that, mm-hmm. we talked, uh, we touched upon rather how, uh, the U.S. arm or the U.S. Navy's air carriers never travel by themselves. Mm-hmm. They always are surrounded by support ships. Sure. Right. And, uh, it's weird because the parade float is sort of like the aircraft carrier in that it's surrounded by these spotters at all times who are really the only reason that parades don't end in weirdly tragic massacres. That's exactly right. There's more spotters than you would think, really, because yeah. every turn requires at least two spotters that are off of the float, mm-hmm. as well as a spotter that's on the float, and then possibly another one that's riding in the float that you don't see. That sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't. Sometimes but in the back. Typically, there's a spotter that's riding on the float that whose job is to do nothing but just watch, make sure that no one's running in front of that float, and, <laughs> and, and they're in constant contact with with headphones, etc. But you know, there's again, there's no seatbelts in these things. There's yep. no doors. Yep. There's maybe an escape hatch. That's probably the best you get for getting out of these things. There's no windshield, no hood. 
Um, when you think about that, you know, you got the engine that powers these things because it's a gasoline engine. Right, and it's not a well-ventilated area. Exactly right. So there's a ton of heat and smell inside these mm-hmm. things because you're smelling the burnt oil, the hot metal, gasoline in some cases. Uh, you know, some of these vehicles are a little bit older, so they may have leaks or whatever. But just for example, you know, the day that this guy drove, it was 50 degrees outside. It was more than 85 degrees underneath the float inside at that time. So you could get an understanding for just how hot this could be if it's a if it's a parade that happens, you know, in the summer months. Uh, it could mm-hmm. be exceedingly hot inside. And he said the the only HVAC system that he had was just kind of a very crude um, dryer pipe that was funneled towards him that was you know taped in place. Yeah, and that's about it. And it really doesn't do a whole lot for uh, you know for ventilation. But he said that he I think it was within 20 minutes he said he had a terrible headache. Just in driving this thing. Yeah, and uh, also, it, we have to be careful because it sounds kind of funny. Let me read this description. Uh, there's there's a person with uh, the Prey Company explaining, um, one year, a Detroit police sergeant got knocked flat by a giant lollipop. I don't know whether he got hurt. I didn't hang around to ask. Plus, we once had, like, a 20-foot polar bear run over a float sponsored by... <laughs> And they name a financial now, company. Now, it sounds funny, right? I mean, it, it does. sounds really funny. And I don't know if anybody got hurt in those situations. I hope not. But uh, but they were saying that, you know, most of these situations where something does happen, happens after the parade ends. Like right. when, when the driver finally hits that end of the parade route, you know, whether it's like a, a couple of miles later, like maybe two and a half miles later, uh, the, the driver finally relaxes and concentration is, is lost or is at least lessened. And, you know, sometimes they bump into each other. Things like that do happen. You know, the spotters yeah. aren't maybe on top of their game at that point because they've already wandered off or they're looking at something else. Um, the spotters, we, we only briefly mentioned that a little bit, but the spotters play a critical role in turning situations as well. Oh, yeah. And one example that we've got here, and we're kind of shift gears, um, going to an article from the L.A. Times. If you uh, search the L.A. Times Rose Parade Imagination on the Move, you will see a uh, really good infographic about what's going on on a parade float, you know, on top of and below the float, and then uh-huh. also what it takes to make a uh, a right hand turn in this. This is a 100 foot float that they they uh, they highlight uh, in this article. Wild. Now, this is for the Rose Parade, the 2013 Rose Parade. Uh, there's a 100 foot long float that was uh, sponsored by Honda. It's called Follow Your Dreams, and that's the float that's in this uh, image here. But some of the things that that stood out to me is that you know this is. It looks like one solid piece, but it's actually three islands put together. You know, three three separate. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, three separate pieces, and that's how it, that, that's critical for them to be able to make any kind of turn on the parade route. That's like the only way they can articulate those turns at all. Exactly right. right. The front island is equipped with casters for turning, and that doesn't really drive or anything. It just kind of follows along where it's pointed. There's a center area, which is where you know there's. Not only an on-deck observer who's above, who's kind of got a seated position on the right-hand side of the float, uh, constant contact with the driver through a wireless headset. And then in that center section is also where the driver is located because there's a section here that says um, float interior. If you click on that, you'll see that the driver, the primary driver, is towards the back end of that second island. Mm-hmm. And then there's a secondary or a rear driver. This is the back. And if you think about it, it's kind of like one of those great big hook and ladder uh, fire vehicles where, you know, the back end has to be driven because the city streets are just too narrow. You have to, as you approach a turn, you have to swing left in order to turn right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it becomes a tricky situation, but the back driver also can't see. So then you've got to have a second spotter that tells the, the rear driver what the front driver is doing. Exactly right. And also spots what those front casters are doing because he can't exactly 
get a feel for that because, I mean, looking at this, this infographic, it looks like the primary driver is a good 60 to 70 feet back from the front of the vehicle. Yeah. Now, if you, I've been trying to do this, Ben, recently. Now that I've got the, the, uh, the scope of this whole thing, I was trying to figure out how far is 100 feet. When you, when you just look at it like down, you know, when I'm walking in the hallway here in the office. Yeah. I go out in this long hallway and I think, is the end of that hallway, is that 100 feet? That's about right, I guess. Mm-hmm. Imagine piloting a vehicle blind, pretty much. I mean, you've got, you know, just maybe one monitor and a few people telling you directions in your, yeah. in your head. And you're going two and a half miles an hour. A six ton <laughs> vehicle that's, you know, as wide as the lane, you know, two lane, three lanes of traffic, maybe. It's 24 feet tall. That's another factor we haven't even talked about is the height and getting through uh, you know, some of the traffic signals and things like that, street mm-hmm. signs. Uh-oh. You have to watch that. So that's another critical spotter thing. Yeah. But imagine trying to turn a 100 foot three piece vehicle through a city street because that's difficult enough in a big car or even a, a small truck. Right. Tough to navigate. But then imagine that there's also, I mean, literally one million people on the curbside lining the curb. And some of them, you know, you never know when they're going to run out. There's, yeah. there's animals on the parade route. There's marching bands that may stop, you know, to mm-hmm. perform. Yep. All kinds of factors that you have to really consider, but this infographic really lays out exactly what's going on beneath the float, on top of the float, how the how the turn is made. It's really complex. It's, right. it's more than you would think. It is more than you th- you would think, especially when we're looking at the the high end stuff. I think that L.A. Times article explores uh, the explores some of the stuff used in the Festival of Roses. Right. Exactly. Right. And that is a huge parade out there in Pasadena, California. You're probably uh, familiar with it. First one took place in 1890, uh, which makes it just a few years older than the other really famous parade, Mardi Gras. Um, really? Yeah, Mardi Gras, I think, is 1857. I had no idea that it was uh, was that old. Interesting. It so was it- probably a, a little bit of a different Different uh, uh, vibe there at the time. I would think so. That's right. But uh, but either way, I mean, this is a fantastic infographic that gives you mm-hmm. a good feel for what's going on on top of and underneath the float. There's a lot more to it than you think. I mean, it looks very, very simple. Mm-hmm. But in order to, to plan this whole thing and make it all really work, I mean, the, the parade route is shown here as well. And um, just making one single right-hand turn seems very difficult. I, I'll be honest. I don't know how they make any of these turns i've got a uh, i've got a world record here for you sure if you want to hear it yeah I would. you know we love the we love these sort of things here uh the longest single chassis parade float and you know going back to our la times design that is important measures are you ready scott i'm ready uh 119 feet and seven inches or 36.45 meters and of course this was the tournament of roses parade in pasadena california January 2012, but you'll never guess uh, who made this. Oh, I, I can't even guess who. Natural Balance Pet Foods. Oh, really? Okay, they were the sponsor. Yeah, okay, that's way more fair. They're the sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right, no problem. I think, you know, I, I had it in my notes here. I think the uh, the person that, um, or the group, rather, that creates the uh, the Rose Parade floats, at least one of them out there, and I'm not sure if they're the one responsible for the world record, is called Studio Concepts, Inc., because mm-hmm. we had already talked about the parade company in Detroit. Right. Right. Um, the, the Studio Concepts Inc. out in uh, California, they're the one who at least put together some of the Rose, Rose Parade, uh, floats. So I think that, uh, you know, there's a good chance that they're the one who built this, this world record float. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. 
Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, You know, one thing, Ben, that I think we need to do here before we wrap up this podcast. What's that? I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the difference between small town parades and big city parades. I'm so glad. Okay, yeah. And I'm going to start with big city parades. Okay. And uh, there's a reason for that. I'll, t- I'll tell you in just a minute. But I want to ask you at the end here what you're uh, you're more a fan of. Or maybe I should ask you right now. Are you more a fan of, of big city parades or small town parades? You've been to both, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what, are you, what are your feelings on that? Well, let me first off say that I love parades. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the the idea itself is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. regardless of what side you're on. I'd rather be in the parade, but regardless of what side you're on. If I had to pick one... To be honest, if we're talking about being there live in person, I'll take a small town parade because and there, there are a few very important reasons. And it was a little bit of a long answer, but I have to give you the yeah, whole answer. That's okay. Because uh, really large parades are great on television, but I'm not the biggest fan of crowds. Ah, that's you a know good what point. I mean. Yeah, like uh, especially if you're in a city where there are millions of people flocking to the streets. My first question is, and guys, I know how paranoid this sounds, but I'm being honest. My first question is, what if something happens? You know what I mean? How am I going to get, what's my exit strategy? Yeah, what, uh, if, what if something like, you remember the movie Animal House? Yes. Do you remember that when, uh, when the, uh, what was it, the Deathmobile 
Remember they they created the death mobile from uh, that 1964 Lincoln Continental. It was uh, it was Flounder. Yeah. It was yeah. Flounder's borrowed vehicle. I think it was his uncle's or something like uh-huh. that. Yeah. What if something like that happens? It's pandemonium. Right. Yeah. Pandemonium is a, the perfect word for this. There's uh there's another thing in defense of small town parades. Uh, when one thing that a uh, a town here in the Atlanta metro area does, uh, the Decatur Parade that happens every year, is something where Anyone can join in. And I love that idea that you could see a parade going by and not even know really what's going on. And if you want to, you can just jump in, start clapping your hands or something. That's pretty cool. And uh, that's one thing that I like about small town parades is that everybody who is watching it is very much participating regardless of you know what side of the street they're on. And you probably know somebody in the parade. Yeah, and you probably know somebody in the parade. Yeah. And uh with uh with a big big city parade, there's there's nothing wrong with it. And they could be fantastic, but if I had to choose one, Scott, that's what I would choose. What about you? All right, I've been taking an informal poll among uh friends and family and yeah. it seems that most people are in favor of small town parades over big town parades for the very reasons that you spoke of. Really? That is the crowds. Now, crowds are huge and very difficult to, uh, you know, get a front row seat, I guess. You're, you're often not able to see everything that happens in a, in a big city parade. Yeah. And, I mean, they're spectacular. They're very, very big. And, you know, if you've got a great vantage point, you know, good for you. But I remember being a kid and, you know, in mm-hmm. dense, dense crowds trying to see what's going on in parades. And, you know, typically you let kids get to the front. You know, they sit down at the, uh, you know, the curbside or whatever. But right. when you're, when you're, you know, 12, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old, something like that, they're less likely to let you up near the front, and you get kind of lost in the in the shuffle back there. So you yeah. miss a lot of things. You know, you see a lot of people's backs, I guess. Now I went to the Dragon Con parade mm-hmm. in Atlanta last last year, I believe, and that was great. That was that was pretty crowded too, because um, I guess it qualifies a big city parade since there were so many people from around the country there, mm-hmm. uh, and and it was neat. But you're right, we had to get there pretty early. And stake out a spot and wait. All right. Yeah, that's typically what happens. You have to get there several hours at a time. And yeah. if it's a Thanksgiving Day parade in Detroit, you're going to be freezing cold. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, you, if it's a, uh, if it's the Rose Parade, I know that, uh, and sometimes it's a little chilly out there. It's not always warm like you would think it would be out in sunny mm-hmm. California. So that sometimes happens. Um, I know there's a lot of St. Patrick's Day parades and those are often chilly, like, you know, in, uh, in Chicago. You yeah. It can be very yeah. cold on, you know, in the middle of March in Chicago. Uh, so things like that, you know, you have to consider, I guess. And, you know, but the good things about, you know, big town parades, and I'll tell you my, my favorite, just so that you know, ahead of yeah. time, small time parade, or I, small town parades. I figured. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But the, the, the last thing I want to say about big town, mm-hmm. big time parade. Mm. <laughs> but the last thing I want to say about big town parades or, you know, big city parades mm-hmm. is that, you know, of course they're big and they have ornate floats and, you know, lots of marching bands, you know, whether it's high school bands sure. or college bands or Celebrities, whatever. Celebrities, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, pro sports teams, you know, huge crowds, things like that. It's all very exciting, but I agree with you. It's maybe better off to watch it, you know, from the comfort of your home, I guess. But a small town parade, this is something I love. I love to be right down there, right on the curbside, you know, waving to the people and they talk to you as they go by. <laughs> um, my The last one I went to, and I, this is just a couple weeks ago, I went yeah. to a small town parade. This is kind of what you know, spurred this idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was at the LaGro Good Old Days Festival in LaGro, Indiana. And it's a very small town in Indiana, northern Indiana. 
and they were having this uh, this festival, this weekend week long festival, or sorry, weekend festival. Mm-hmm. And I was there for my grandmother's ninetieth birthday. She was at it. We were having it at this big church hall, and it was happening right outside of the church. Like we could just walk out, and it was right on that main street, right at, right outside in the town there. Did you know it was coming up? We did know, but um, I, I personally didn't know until the day of. They knew it was happening all along. It wasn't planned because of that event or anything. Right. It just it just coincided with it. And it was okay. A, I guess a happy accident is what happened, right? Yeah. But but the cool thing was, we knew it was all it was going to happen, and people were lining up and everything, you know, on the side of the road, but not many. And so we walked out right when it starts. You know, you hear the uh, the sirens from the ambulance coming down the street to signify the beginning of the parade. Right. And you can walk right out and get right to the very front and see everything that happens. Now, the cool thing about a small town parade, if you've never been to one, and I'll just briefly describe it here, but you see a lot of like tractors, uh, you know, restored and unrestored, yep. you know, garden tractors, not mm-hmm. garden tractors, but big farm tractors. You see some uh, go-karts? Uh, no, we didn't see any go-karts. There were no Shriners in this one, which sometimes you'll see, but the big city parades often have a lot of I that. love how you knew I meant Shriners yeah. when I say go-karts. Oh, because the Shriner <laughs> cars. Oh, man. Okay, so quick sidebar. Yeah. The Shriner go-karts. If you've never seen Shriner go-karts, check it out online because they have some fantastic um, um, precision driving that they that they do at these yeah, parades. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Usually it's a big city parade, not so yeah. much a small town thing, but uh, sometimes you'll catch them there at small towns. Uh, okay, so, you know, the restored and unrestored tractors, we mentioned that. Yep. Lots of classic cars, you know, the, with, uh, you know, kids or the, uh, the the local beauty queens on the back, you know, waving to the crowd. Sometimes politicians, you know, things like that. Lots of kids with bikes with uh Decorations, you know, like streamers, things like that. Yeah. Um, people pulling hay wagons with, you know, a, a dog sitting next to them, but they're waving and throwing candy <laughs> to the crowd. Um, uh, the people, just, not the dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, the people, not the dog. Um, you'll rarely see an actual decorated float that goes by. Sometimes it'll be a trailer, a flatbed trailer that mm-hmm. will have, you know, some type of setup on top of it, but it's not really a true decorated float. Um, so don't expect that, but you'll see a lot of fire engines, ambulances with lights and sirens on, which I think is really awesome. I had a couple of, you know, I've got a couple of nephews now and yeah. they're just over one year old and they loved the, uh, the, the fire engines with the lights on and the sirens and everything. It was a bit loud for them, but they loved seeing them. It was really cool. And this parade, Ben, hmm. the one standout in this parade, what was it? A live elephant. Whoa. And you wouldn't expect a live elephant at the good old days festival in LaGrow, Indiana, but they had a live elephant walking down the street. And it was kind of, the, it was the, uh, I guess it was maybe the crowning jewel of the whole right, thing the because thing. It, was, it was really cool to see it. I mean, it was just neat. I mean, you can't help yourself but pull out your camera and take a few photos as it goes by. It's just, it's a fun, fun event. And you get so much more out of it. It's so much more of a personal connection, I think, between mm. you. And the people that you feel like you have a connection between them, you're waving to them and sure. they're smiling and, you know, talking to their neighbors or whatever. It's it's a good time. Um, we also should point out one thing we didn't quite get to mm-hmm. is uh, the there are places in the world that regularly have parades. For mm-hmm. A lot of people, this will instantly bring to mind Disney. Oh, definitely. They do daily parades, they right? Do daily parades. And some of those floats are crazy. So I, I, I had a real quick thing. On, Don't they on, have a light parade? Is that what I'm thinking of? The uh um, where all the floats are, are decorated with lights and they do it at dusk or after dark. Yeah, I think they have several. Um, yeah. that might be, it might even be its own podcast, but the, the space inside these floats can vary widely. And I haven't, I haven't been able to see a cutaway or anything, but I've heard there are floats that you have to drive laying down. No kidding. Lying down. Yeah. There, there are no, uh, remote controls on floats yet. Uh, as far as we know, as far as you and I were able to find. 
every bo- every float has someone driving it. So every time that you are watching uh, the Rose Parade, every time you're watching Thanksgiving Day Parade, just take a second and appreciate that there is somebody in there. Yeah, just just go practically in heat exhaustion. Yeah, and, tr- uh, inhaling fumes from uh, yeah. from from a gasoline engine. And, uh, you know, there's more than one person under there. There's, there's uh, more there's, than one. There's usually a second driver, you know, yeah. a secondary driver in the back yeah. or in the front, I guess, maybe. Um, just it's it's uh, there's a lot more going on on these floats than you really think. And again, you know, if you think it's all fun and games, take a look at that, that car and driver article, even though it's a little bit older. But um, mm-hmm. it's called Ever Wonder Who's Inside a Parade Float. And uh, you, you'll get an idea for what it's exactly like. And um, I don't know. I think it's just that there's a there's a lot more to it than most people would think. Yeah, certainly a lot more than I thought. Uh, we're going to go ahead and head out. Oh, before we do, do you want to do some listener mail? Yeah, let's do some real quick. Okay, Scott, Jake writes to us from Westlake, Texas, and says, Hey, guys, just heard the podcast about mileage milestones. You asked to have people write in about their cars with their mileage on it. You remember this one, right? I do. And he said, got two for you, one not so impressive and another I think you will like. Uh my dad, number one, my dad bought a 1987 Honda CRX, brand new, back in 87. Drove it, gave it to my older brother when he turned 16, who drove it till he graduated. Ten years later, boom, I took the car over. I got it with 120K on it, put another 70K on it before wrecking the front end. Still drivable. We parked it, got a new car. I then gave it to a little old lady during a garage sale I was having. Uh, and that's kind of neat to pick up a car at a garage sale. Sure. Um and two to three years later, I saw it at the local grocery store, repaired and still going strong. Peaked in, it had over 215,000 on the odometer. Not bad. That's not the impressive one. Here we go. Number two, this one was not my car, but I was working in service at a local Toyota dealer, and a customer brought in his old 1980s Tacoma for regular maintenance. And when I went in to get the mileage, the truck had 985,000 miles on it. Wait, wait, wait. Almost a million miles. Almost a million miles. That's really impressive. He said it was a traveling salesman's car. It was slightly rough looking and it ran like a slug, but it still ran and slightly, he drove it daily. Slightly rough looking. I bet for, <laughs> uh, for a million miles, man. I mean, I That's can't imagine. Amazing. I can't imagine the, uh, the stone chips on the front of that vehicle after a million miles. Yeah. That's just such a, um, what was that? It, it made me think, you know, back to that world record. Of what three million miles? Yeah, that's right. It was it was approaching three million and likely over three million at this point. That's true. Yeah. So uh, looks like that Tacoma is coming up behind you. It's on its way. Yeah, Jake. Thank you so much for writing in. We uh we really enjoyed uh, hearing that because it's so rare for a car to make it nine hundred and eighty five thousand miles. Yeah. Now the uh, the CRX story. I mean, that's still impressive. Uh, but that's kind of like the way I got my first vehicle. It was, uh, you know, handed through three brothers, I believe, in a family, and then I bought it, you know, as the fourth owner, mm-hmm. and it had something like 110000 on it at that point. It was completely whipped, and it was, it was rusted, and I loved it. You know, it was a, mm-hmm. my first car, but um, but it was really, really rough condition. It never would have made it to 200 and some thousand miles. So, you know, uh, I guess good for that CRX owner, whoever picked it up and, uh, you know, put some time and effort into getting it back on the road again, because... They they stretched it another hundred thousand miles or something like hey, that. Hey man, right? yeah, maybe they'll make it yeah, maybe. even further. Uh, so write in and let us know about your mileage stories. If you have ever been one of those poor souls who volunteers to drive a parade float, 
We'd like to hear uh, about your experiences, too. Scott, in most cases, you know, it's going to be uh, someone who has a good heart and a pickup truck. Can I, can I tell you something? Yeah. Even, even, though, even though I'm listening to all this and I've read all this information about how awful it is and how terrible it is to, to drive a float. Did you difficult. change your mind? I, I would, I would think I would maybe want to try it. I mean, maybe just, you know, just go into the, the, maybe the driving school, but I don't think I would want to do it on the day of an actual event. I think it's just too much stress. I really do. I mean, when I, when I read all that, there's a lot of stress to it, but I would, I would like to try the parade driving school for sure. I mean, that'd be fun to do it like, you know, in a controlled situation, no real crowd danger. But, uh, but you get the full experience. Yeah. Driving school would be really cool. Yeah. And of course, I mean, who wouldn't want to just drive a pickup truck or something pulling a float? That'd be, that'd be easy. That's, that's not really all that difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but when you're talking about actually being encased in a float, you know, underneath where you can't see anything except for the monitor and you've got people, you know, talking to you and give directing you with hand signals, things like that. Uh, that's a different situation, but I, I still would like to try the, the, uh, parade driving school. I guess I would drive a float if it was a, for a cause I believed in and they really needed someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. But I would only do it as a last resort. Going to the driving school sounds like a lot of fun. That's a life experience, you know? Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Sure. Isn't that what, uh, is that what we all learned to say growing up is it built character? <laughs> That's right. That's usually when you, uh, when you have a severe accident. <laughs> it builds character. Yeah, it builds character. <laughs> like you get fired or something. It's like, uh, builds character. I knew a guy who was, uh, unemployed for a few years and he put, uh, building character on his resume from like 2004 to 2005. I wonder if that impressed anybody. He got hired. Oh, okay. Um, all right. So I guess we're ending on a positive note. Uh, as we said, let us know about your experiences uh, driving or building parade floats. And, uh, you know, if you have any mileage records, we'd love to hear those, too. Let's see if someone can beat 985,000. I think that's the top one we've received so far. Yeah, so far it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're always looking forward to more mail. You can also find us all over the Internet. We are a Car Stuff HSW on Twitter. We are Car Stuff on Facebook. And you can email us directly where we are. Car Stuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? 
Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.